Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Be The Church podcast, where we are engaging in conversations that will encourage you to live out your faith in everyday context so that you can be the church. I am your producer, Isaiah Fetterman. I'm one of your hosts, Theo Lightborn. And I'm one of your other hosts, Kevin Anderson. And welcome back. We're getting back into the swing of things uh, with last week, and now we're into this week as we move on to the next chapter of Gentle and Lowly. As a quick reminder, if you would like to follow along, you are welcome to ask one of us or just uh, one of the leaders at Aletheia, and we will give you this book for free. Um, if you are joining us from afar, feel free to email us at podcast at and we will even ship it to you so you guys can follow along. Uh, but you need to email us. Texting us is not sufficient. And please add your address as well. Um, even if you think we know it, let's just be sure. but we are so glad you guys can follow along and we're excited to continue through this also if you want the questions we uh, use as our guideline uh, there should be a link in the description if you can't see because you're listening I'm pointing down because it's probably below the video anyways (laughs) with that uh, I just want to do a quick overview for gentle and lowly uh, just to start every week and Um, That leads us to our first question, which we did ask last week, but we'll ask again this week. Theo, what is Gentle and Lowly about? Yeah, happy to recap for you guys what the book's about so we can uh, kind of dive right into it. So I'm just going to give you a little recap of what we talked about last week. So this is a book about the heart of Christ. Who is he really? What is most natural to him? What ignites within him most immediately as he moves towards sinners and sufferers? This book is written for the discouraged, the frustrated, the weary, the disenchanted, the cynical, the empty. Those running on fumes, those of us who find ourselves thinking, how could I mess up that bad again? It is for that increasing suspicion that God's patience with us is wearing thin. And for those of us who know that God loves us, but we suspect that we have deeply disappointed him. So this is a book written for everyday people. Absolutely. And then the key verse for the book is actually Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 and 29, which say these words, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Amen. And so definitely uh, a very good book that we are excited to be going through. And that does bring us to this question then, Kevin, of why are we going through this book? Basically, we're just, we want, you know, the, the point of the book is to capture the idea of who God is. I think we have a tendency to focus in on truths about doctrine or things that we believe. Um, and this book is trying to to not replace doctrine, but move us past doctrine to understand the the who we are worshiping and, and who he really is and if we know who he is hopefully it would spur us to a deeper love of jesus and help us to view him as more approachable 
which I think at the end of the day uh, is something that all of us as believers should be pursuing. And I think this this book challenges us to, it challenges us to move past the tendency of solely considering what Christ has done and to ponder and consider who he is. And hopefully as we study this together, we'll be successful at doing that. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, just to, as well, give us a little insight into this particular week then, um, Theo, can you give us a quick overview or focus from this chapter? Yeah, so in this particular chapter, we're going to learn about Jesus's heart for sinners um, and we're going to see what he does in response to sinners. We're going to see Christ's heart in action and not just hear and read his words, but see what his actions were towards people mm. who need him. Yeah. Absolutely. <clears throat> now, uh, we are planning to jump into the questions that if you do go to the link and get the study guide, we kind of steal from them a little bit. But uh, if you see that one of those questions is not there, don't be shocked. We just didn't answer it, and it's okay because uh, we wanted to focus on stuff we could discuss and, and really help uh, process through that would be most beneficial to you guys. So if there are questions yeah. skipped around, that's why. Um, so without further ado then, the first question we want to tackle today is how do Jesus' actions throughout the four Gospels manifest his heart for sinners? To whom does he naturally gravitate? So the, ex- the example of Christ shown all throughout his time on earth uh, is that he displays love to the lowly and downtrodden, those that can't help themselves, those that are lost, um, broken, hurting, confused, and uh, he, he seeks to meet them where they're at and, and rescue them. Uh, from from their plight, you know, examples of this would be the par- you know one of my favorites, the paralytic being lowered from the the thatch roof of the of the home he's in down into the room to be healed. But other prime examples of this are, you know, his feeding of the five thousand. I, I find that entire account fascinating because here you have all these people who have come to hear and listen to him teach about the kingdom of God. And they hit a point where they've been listening to him for quite some time. And his disciples are obviously right, struck by the fact that we can't feed all of these people here. And Jesus has compassion on them, wants to meet them where they're at and provide for them. Um, the, the leper in Matthew chapter 8, a uh, great example shared in, in chapter 2. Uh, but the leper says, Lord, if you are willing to heal me and make me clean, it will be so. And Jesus' response is, I will be clean. And that word will in the Greek is the actual word for desire. And so what we see is is, is Christ, we, we talked about this in the first chapter, but Christ's heart is for the downtrodden, the broken, the hurt, the sinful, uh, those that can't help themselves out of their plight. And his heart and his desire is for them. And his work and his ministry was often centered around not this idea, I think, that we often tend to have of of gospel proclamation and um, preaching of doctrine, which is something that is important, but his actual heart was to meet people where they were at and rescue them from their plight. I love that story that you mentioned about the the paralytic because— 
Jesus responds to his their the guy's friend's faith and not to his faith directly. Like we don't see that this guy had this great faith, but we see that his friends have faith enough to be able to create a hole in the roof and to lower him all the way down. And that's just amazing to me. Um, just like how desirous he is of seeing faith exercise that even when the person themselves has exercised faith, he still heals them anyway. Mm. You know, same thing he did with uh, the centurion's daughter. You know, she exercised no faith, but her dad did. Yeah. Uh, so, man, God just is so desirous of, like, seeing faith in his people. Yeah, absolutely. That's so powerful. And as I think about that, you know, I think about the compassion and sympathy that were just overflowing aspects of Jesus' entire ministry on earth. You know, we constantly see him moved by the people around him. And that internal movement of his heart always leads him towards external actions towards people. Um, and that example for us is as powerful as his words were. The fact that he just couldn't help himself, but he had to heal. He had to transform. He had to take care of people. Uh, his heart was so active. And there's a great quote from the book that says, but that dominant note left ringing in our ears after reading the Gospels, the most vivid and arresting element of the portrait is the way the Holy Son of God moves toward touches, heals, embraces, and forgives those who least deserve it, yet truly desire it. It's pretty countercultural in reality when we think of Christ's heart and action compared to at least us as Americans and the way we approach even sometimes, you know, helping others. You know, we have this tendency to... um you know, claim, well, we're not going to help those that don't help themselves, you know, the, the pull yourself up by your bootstraps mentality. And I think there is wisdom, you know, in how we steward our resources to sure. serve and love and help others. Mm-hmm. But I, I think what, what we see out of our Lord, right, is this default posture of desiring to help first, to serve first, to love first, to be gracious first, to heal first before we would maybe venture into territory of, of what um, requirements might need to be met mm-hmm. to have that done. And how radically might this transform our ministries? How radically might this transform others' opinions of Christ's church if his followers more quickly followed in his footsteps or more, more readily followed his heartbeat for the lowly and the destitute than, than maybe we, we frequently display i i think another thing to take note as well as i'm thinking and listening to like what we're talking about right now is almost the countercultural uh introspection of this perspective as well to say like hey nobody's perfect and though culture calls us to be perfect and to try to look good and to try to be the best person we can be that the reality is everyone is broken in some way and struggles in some way and one of the realities here is like you know jesus moves toward these people and if we have an honest reflection we are all that person in some way and so it is a a push against pride in some ways to say hey like we come before jesus with issues and with struggles and there is a, a step there of like recognizing that we are more aware of our sin, more aware of our struggles. And, and I think like, I don't want that to be lost to people who are listening and might think they have their life more together than others. When the reality is there, there are always going to be issues that qualify us to need Jesus. 
Right. Well, I, I think one of the things we're seeing in all of this, right, is there's there's kind of this this double edged sword of how to approach this, right? There's the one side that is, hey, I need to remember that my Lord is accessible. Yeah. I need to, I need to be reminded of His very heart for me and for other broken, sinful people like myself. I need, I need to remember that that access is not just something that is available, but the Lord desires that I, that I take hold of that access and go to Him. But it is also a call to us to mimic our Lord yeah. and to be that way. And I think both of these things can be a challenge to us as followers of Christ of, I must first be going to the well that is the grace of Christ, yeah. but I also need to be displaying that grace of Christ to others without pre-qualifiers that I'm so frequently wanting to put on them myself. Yeah, that just reminds me of this idea that, you know, God himself is just so generous. And when he describes to us love, you know, in the most famous verse in the Bible, John three sixteen, he shows us that love is about giving. Love is about generosity. Love's not about taking and receiving as much as it is about giving. Um, and that's just what we see in Jesus' character consistently throughout the Gospels is he's constantly generous in giving. He's always trying to bless those around him. Yeah. And like you're saying, you know, like that should be the attitude of our hearts, but we're so reluctant in so many ways and we're so conditional in so many mm -hmm. ways. And man, thank God that he is not reluctant nor conditional towards us. Amen. Yeah, so th that does bring us into the next question, though, and just speaking of his character, um, does stressing the compassionate love of Christ underemphasize other elements of his character? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a good question. The book obviously spent a couple pages talking about that. Sure. Not, I, I think personally, though, and we talked about this during the production meeting, yes, orthodoxy is important, but at least I think within our tribe— and kind of our tradition and where we come from and a lot of my experience with the church in the West, both not not even just here in the U.S., but in Western culture in general. I, I don't know. Do, do you guys believe we really run the risk of de-emphasizing orthodoxy or, un, as he puts in the question, they're under-emphasizing other elements of his character? Because I think we're more likely to ignore the heart of God rather than surrender vital orthodoxy at least in, in my experience i don't know what do you what do you guys think i mean I'll, I'll definitely say at least in the circles that we are in right now especially in the age of information like information is so so sought after yeah and like we try to look at everything very intellectually so it does make it very challenging to think of it relationally and not just mm. intellectually when it is such a big element of our culture yeah, I totally agree with that. We're we're definitely in a place where we typically in the, uh, emphasize orthodoxy, um, and we don't necessarily look at Christ's heart. So I think that's definitely a reflection of our culture and uh, just where the church is here in the West in general. Do you think there's different expressions of the church or maybe um, different tribes or denominations that might do a better job of this than others? Yeah, so I personally think that the charismatics do a really good job of emphasizing um, Jesus' heart and trying to be Shout out to the charismatics. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I, I've, I've had a lot of friends and family members who've been a part of that movement. Um, and in so many ways, some of the things that we see as problematic um, 
are also some of their biggest strengths. And so I'll give you an example of that. So one of the things that charismatics usually uh, emphasize is they have a strong view on healing, strong view of spiritual gifts. Yeah. Uh, they believe in uh, being continuationists. And so they don't believe that the spiritual gifts have ended uh, with the age of the apostles, but yeah. they continue Amen. now. And so one our, of the things are charismatic over here, right? What yeah. Affirming say? all these words. <laughs> so, so one of the things that they emphasize, they emphasize healing. And so like from their perspective, healing is a ministry that God has given us yeah. today. And they're doing that to, to help broken people um, get on their feet and become whole again and become who God has called them to be. You know, they're very compassionate in that way. Like the heart of Christ, the emphasis of Christ's compassion they have those elements displayed mm. because they're actively trying to see people healed. Um, and, then, and they believe they believe they want to see those people healed because they believe that Christ wants to see those exactly. people healed, right? This is something we were kind of getting at yesterday because I didn't fully even kind of grasp the motivation behind that. I always thought it was a motivation, kind of what we even see in 1 Corinthians as we're studying that book as a church of, well, they desire these gifts because of, you know, that particular church anyway was desirous more so of, maybe the attention or the accolades or the power that came behind displaying those gifts. But you're saying that in your experience with charismatics, the heartbeat behind those gifts is centered around wanting to see Christ's heart for others, for the lowly and the destitute put into action. Correct. Yeah. And, and Theo beautifully put as the one who leans that way. I, I definitely agree with everything you said and appreciate it. If you were watching right now, instead of listening, you would see, I had a big smile the whole time he was talking. <laughs> um, and I will say like the struggle therein lies like with how they go about doing it sometimes, but that's not the point of the question right now. Right. For and, sure. And Absolutely. We're not going to press too much into the orthodoxy side of maybe that. Um, Let me but, ask this question, maybe yeah. as someone who considers himself to be like a reformed charismatic with um, to steal Mark Driscoll's famous line from, you know, the, the mid 2000s with a seatbelt. <laughs> yeah. Where what do you think the seatbelt is problematic and why? So and this is definitely some debate. And again, I don't want to derail us for too long on this, uh, but. I, I think if the seatbelt is scripture and scripture is our guide mm. and we let that be our uh, qualifier for what is good and what isn't, then I think we're in a safe place. Now, there comes in the realm of like, well, maybe we're missing out on the fullness of something, but it's it's a, a question of, you know, do I just want to do what scripture says and leave it at that and be content with that? And ultimately, at the end of the day, you know, is our main heart to love God and love people well. And is that what our aim is in doing those things? Because I feel like a lot of the expressions that go beyond what scripture says are rooted in kind of like what first Corinthians is with some pride and some showiness um, that I don't think is healthy. And I think if they're rooted in the heart of love, we're at a much better place. So possibly right where, where we might critique those that overemphasize the use of the spiritual gifts because it can be puffed up with pride. Yeah. Maybe those that might even fall in the same tribe as me as we run the risk of running the same exact danger, except just on the completely opposite end of the spectrum. We're so worried about not stepping outside the bounds of scripture that we forget God's heart for sin for sinners and lowly and the destitute. And we bind up the Holy spirit in an attempt to be so concerned about doctrinal fidelity that we lose the very heart of our Savior, mm. yeah. whom which doctrine is supposed to describe. 
and make clear to us. <laughs> so I think I'm just going to start praying, and in the next few months, maybe we'll start seeing some uh, healings uh, at service uh, if Kevin will allow it. So, haha, be praying for, uh, with me too, everyone. So, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's such a good emphasis because it's a question of brokenness that is displayed on both sides. Yeah. You know, so there's, there's always brokenness manif- uh, manifested, um, you know, in different ways. And so what you just described is, you know, from the, from the more reformed tradition, there's brokenness because we limit the Holy Spirit. Mm. And then from the more charismatic tradition, there's brokenness because there's an overemphasis that on the Holy Spirit that de-emphasizes orthodoxy from, from our perspective. So, yeah, Absolutely. You know, and that's the same issue that we saw in Jesus's day. Mm, you know, like we yeah. had the Pharisees who went too far to the right, and then you had those who compromised with Rome who went too far to the left. You know, so like in so many ways, God has called us to be balanced and to hold things with tension. And human beings have a really hard time with that, as we see in our country right now. Like we have a really hard time holding the middle. We love to be extremists. Well, I think you know, for those of you guys that are interested in His High Holiness, the Reverend Tim Keller, <laughs> he he at least comes at this from a very, because I think one of the things I've, I've found myself saying regularly in regards to politics, but I think it even works its way into the church, and you were using this this, this idea of the middle ground. Um, he, he makes this point regularly that it's not just the middle ground that we seek to find, because if the middle ground is not the right ground, then it doesn't matter. He's like, you know, we, we need to make sure that the, the the guidepost that we're running after is our Lord and what is true about him, not even the middle ground between the things that we might agree or disagree on with, with the other side of, an, uh, of a discussion or debate. And so I think even as we approach this idea of seeing Christ's heart for the lowly and the downtrodden, we can within even our own framework and understanding of orthodoxy, still see the heart of Christ and worship him because he he's desirous. Whether whether you're a cessationist and you think ultimately that's going to be found up and like bound up in future glory with Christ's second coming, or you believe in all the gifts all the time, 24-7-365 and on the leap year 366, right? <laughs> right? That 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 the heart of Christ for those that are suffering and in pain and downtrodden does not change. And that's something that we need to frequently remind ourselves of. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, As much as I want (coughs) to keep talking about this and, and press into it more, we will move on to the next question. Uh, and it is, how is Jesus's natural impulse towards sin and suffering different from our typical instinct? What can we learn from his example? Yeah, so one of the things I, I think is just so difficult for us to grasp, and I think there's probably a number of factors at play that are all rooted, I think, obviously, at the end of the day, in the fact that were broken and enslaved to sin from the womb. But as unclean, Scripture teaches Jesus still longs to embrace me and my brokenness. And I think what we see in his, in his example is he's telling me, you know, Kevin, while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you, right? He loved you. He pursued you. He came after you. 
you can you can do the same. You can be spat on, abused, despised, rejected of men. And I think, you know, we can view this if we if we want to, if we want to imitate Christ. You know, Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. If we want to be imitators of Christ, we can we can call ourselves, right? Not to perfection, but we can call ourselves to overcome our proclivity to recoil from the difficult. And and when we find ourselves recoiling from the difficult, repent of that. I think it's it's a very real reality that God wants us to see people in their brokenness and run after them the way that the way that he might. And I, I think I think the question is is has the the church historically shown us this though? Like historically over the course of the last two thousand years has the has the church shown us this? I think by and large, no. You know, the early church did such a great job of that, and that's why the movement spread so well. It's because they did such a great job of taking care of the orphan, the widow, those who were destitute, the aborted babies, uh, the slaves of their society. They did a great job of that. But as the church increased in power, the church decreased its emphasis on taking care of the downtrodden, the sinful, the sufferers. And we've just continued that tradition in so many ways with the more power we've acquired. So yeah, absolutely. It's it's a struggle for us historically. Why do you think that is? I think that in a lot of ways, people get to a place where they feel comfortable and they feel established mm. and they feel elevated. And it's always hard for people to like become passionate towards a place that they were previously. So let me give you an, an example of that. I used to teach uh, students in a school, and it was always so hard for me to get seniors to be compassionate towards freshmen. And I would just look at them and be like, dude, like you were just there like three or four years ago, mm-hmm. and now like you have this like really difficult attitude towards this freshman because you think that everything that they do is so immature. But remember, like that used to be you. And then I would look at freshmen, and they would feel the same way towards sixth graders. And then I work with college students, and they would feel the same way towards seniors in high school. And like at every place in life people get to a place where they've moved beyond a certain place and they have a difficult time looking back and remembering what it was like to be there and i think that in a lot of ways that's what the church has done the church Mm -hmm. has gotten to a place where we've acquired power and status authority freedom liberty in this country and it's hard for us to look back on people that have less and to put them in equal place with us but people who are coming from a different place that's not as elevated and to put them in the same place as we are and that's our detriment. So basically what you're describing about your students is that famous movie from the 80s, Trading Places, with Eddie Murphy and Dan Aykroyd, right? Which in many ways kind of shows that, you know? I mean, obviously it's meant to be a comedy, but it's a play on that of once someone's elevated, how quickly they forget that lowly state yes. they came from and how quickly those that were high when brought low are treated not with their former status mm-hmm. as the young guy in the one. room i can say i have not seen that movie but it sounds good it's a, <laughs> it's a classic it's a classic for sure yeah absolutely um i have it on dvd if you want to borrow it sometime oh, lovely <laughs> um i i will say as well um if i remember my train of thought here hold on <laughs> um when it comes to this i, I think Jesus sets an example for us so well in constantly doing this. And I think one of the other reasons we tend to 
also forget is we stop loving others and in doing that more we become more callous to it and especially as we get self-focused in helping others um I remember hearing uh, a story from some German missionaries who just did a lot of prep work to go and they just felt so like dead a lot in like their ministry until they finally finished seminary and went out and just started helping and loving people and just the life it brings to help and love others and reminds us of like, hey, I remember when I was there because there's something life giving and in remembering as well <coughs> to love and serve those around us that constantly renews our remembrance. Like, oh yeah, that's that's really good. And, and I think that's one of the struggles with COVID is when we were so distant from everyone, we kind of pushed away from that because we couldn't really mm. serve as well. That for me, it's been so life-giving just in the past few months to be like, oh yeah, this is what it's like. Like, wow, like I'm a lot more tired than I am. And you know, like I, I feel stretched a lot more than I was, but I feel so much more alive uh, in this moment when I actually am doing this and remembering like this is important to love like Christ has loved and to be doing it regularly. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things that I remember Matt Chandler speaking one time at a conference I was at and something that really struck me was he was trying to help us as pastors and leaders understand this juxtaposition of uh, rest in Christ and tiredness for Christ. Mm. And he said, hey guys, there's nothing wrong with working hard all day and then coming home as a husband and pouring yourself into your children and your wife and going to bed exhausted. That is a blessed tiredness. Mm. And I think, you know, we tend to, at least for me personally, run the, the, the gambit of either saying, I need to overwork and work like crazy or, hey, I'm working too hard. I'm not resting enough. I need to, you know, have me time or whatever else it really is. And I think the the biblical way is so often work hard for Christ, work hard for the glory of God, rest in his work, not yours. And when we do that, Right when we when we're really resting in His work, when we're really resting in Him, we're going to be far more likely to run after the downtrodden because they won't be slowing us down. They won't be, you know, not giving anything in return when 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 we're looking for results based work or whatever it, it may be. And so I I really think in many ways going through a resource like this that's help, trying to encourage us to re capture the heart of Christ and recapture the heart of who he really is might allow us to set our gaze on a much better way forward. Yeah, absolutely. That's such a good word. And that just reminds me of, you know, just the fact that Jesus's example for us is so powerful and we so frequently forget it. And that should motivate us and lead us towards reflecting the actions that he took on our behalf uh, actions that he displayed so that we can be able to emulate him and to be able to to replicate what he did. Man, it's, it's powerful. Because mm. our typical instinct, like you said, is to draw away from those types of people. And I pray so frequently, God, like, make me more like you. Give me mm. your heart. That's a constant prayer. Like, give me your heart towards people. Transform me. Because it's not natural. Yeah. So, um, again, 
These are great questions, but we will move on to the next one. And this is our last question for today, um, which is, how does Jesus reverse the interplay between the Old Testament categories of clean and unclean? And what relevance does this have in for your own life? So I just love this section of the book. So I'm just going to read to you this little excerpt from the book because I thought it was really powerful. Um, and we can talk about it for a little bit uh, about unclean and clean. Because for a, a lot of us, this is irrelevant to our current day because we just don't have the same type of categories as he did in biblical no, times. For sure. So this section says, in biblical terms, these categories generally refer not to physical hygiene, but to moral purity. The two cannot be completely disentangled, but moral or ethical cleanliness is the primary meaning. This is evident in the solution that uncleanness was not taking a bath, but offering a sacrifice, Leviticus 5.6. The problem was not dirt, but guilt, Leviticus 5.3. The Old Testament Jews, therefore, operated under a sophisticated system of degrees of uncleanness and various offerings and rituals to become morally clean once more. One particularly striking part of this system is that when an unclean person comes into contact with a clean person, that clean person becomes unclean. Moral dirtiness is contagious. Consider Jesus. In Levitical categories, he is the cleanest person to ever walk the face of the earth. He was the clean one. Whatever horrors cause us to cringe, we who are naturally unclean and fallen, will cause Jesus to cringe all the more. We cannot fathom the sheer purity, holiness, cleanness of his mind and heart, the simplicity, the innocence, the loveliness. And what did he do when he saw the unclean? What was his first impulse when he came across prostitutes and lepers? He moved toward them. Pity flooded his heart, the longing of true compassion. He spent time with them. He touched them. We all can testify to the humanness of touch. A warm hug does something warm words of greeting alone cannot. But there is something deeper in Christ's touch of compassion. He was reversing the Jewish system. When Jesus, the clean one, touched an unclean sinner, Christ did not become unclean. The sinner became clean. And I just love that excerpt because it just shows us uh, the power of Christ and how he reverses the natural order of things. Mm -hmm. And what an encouragement to us to not forsake the unclean, but to go to them just as he did and seek to ask them to receive him so that they can be clean as well. So you said earlier, Theo, that that maybe in our modern times we don't necessarily have categories of clean and unclean the way that that scripture did or the way that first century Israelites would have. Um, and I would agree in those standards, but I still think very much so. And every, I think every culture and people group that's ever existed has this. So the question would be is, hey, in the 21st century USA, where do we kind of see this idea of clean and unclean most prominent be, being played out currently in our society and where do Christians kind of fall into the trap of is this the right terminology moral hypocrisy of refusing to interact with the lowly and the destitute because of, of where they stand I mean I feel like we can definitely answer this in the Bible belt particularly um, but just with certain 
sinful tendencies that people might have, especially when it comes to the LGBTQ community. Yeah. Um, you know, on one hand, they're like, hey, this sin is very bad. So we're just going to, you know, say go to hell. Yeah. Um, whereas, you know, behind closed doors, like look at adultery, look at uh, divorce and all these other things. And, and, you know, sex before marriage, like that are in God's eyes just as wicked, but, you know, still so prominent even in the Bible Belt. Um, you know, and, and Christ calls us to move towards anyone who's in yeah. sin, and that includes all of them, not to tell them to go to hell, but to say, hey, Jesus loves you, and we can work through this. Mm, that's good. Yeah, I would say the clean and unclean categories are, like, so numerous. You know, so that's a really good example of one. Um, you can look at people who are, like, in poverty. Like, they are unclean. You can have people who are of different denominations. They can be unclean. Um, there's so many ways that Christians draw a line in the sand and say we are clean and they are not. Yeah. I, I think the biggest categories I see being played out, sadly and not surprisingly, follow along political ideologies or political lines. Um, and, and oftentimes it depends on which camp you find yourself in on whether you consider your camp to be clean or, or unclean. You know, um, I think of woke ideology that that's, especially in our context in our city and the demographic that we reach out to something that's very, very important to people. Um, and those that refuse to hold to all the tenets of, of a, a woke ideology get declared anathema to those inside, you know, the circle of, of cleanness. What is anathema? Go ahead, Isaiah. You look no, like you willing to say I, it. I don't know. It, it means basically like you you are you are um, in in scripture when that terminology is used when something is anathema, it means it's completely contradictory to God. It's completely untrue. It's completely heretical. So so when I use that term to describe someone who wouldn't be inside the circle of of, of a woke ideology, it means. They are unclean. They are, you are not to be around them. You are to completely reject them. You are to run from them. Because when Paul uses that terminology in the New, New Testament, when he says, treat them as anathema to you, means do not have anything to do with them. Separate yourself from them. And I think we do that in our own society with these, with these various kind of cultural um, lenses that we tend to kind of kind of view things. And obviously I'm using one specific example, but when I talk up I know those that are outside of that ideology who kind of look on those inside the ideology and would, would feel the same way about them and say, well, I'm not going to associate with them. I'm not going to have anything to do with them. I'm going to reject them wholesale because of their, their worldview, their ideology, what they believe, what they, what they, what they think. And obviously that's just one example inside the political spectrum that tends to find its way inside the church. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I, I know people that, that hold so tightly to some of the tenets or things we see inside of, um, a woke ideology that they, that they will go so far as to claim brothers and sisters in Christ as non-believers because of their particular stance on something. And that's a really big leap to make. Yeah. In many ways. And, you know, it's interesting sometimes um, even sympathizing with someone's um, maybe views on things like ra racial reconciliation or socioeconomic issues or whatever it may be, but then flat out rejecting the clean, unclean 
tenants that they want to hold to inside their tribe and therefore feeling like an orphan, <laughs> which I think as believers, if, if Peter's right, we should feel like aliens and sojourners in a foreign yep. land because ultimately, right, we're after what our king says is true about these various things and we're after his glory and his kingdom. And therefore, at the end of the day, we won't agree with anybody because what we're shooting for is not the same thing that that many of the political tribes and ideologies around us are shooting for. Yeah. But we do we do very much so have much to learn from Christ. Yeah. When looking at this because I think it is easier just to say boom, I don't want to have anything to do with you anymore. Yeah. How, do you, how do you think we fight against this? I think that it always ultimately comes down to submission to Scripture. And I know that that kind of sounds a little bit reductionistic to people maybe listening to the podcast, but in so many different instances, like if we would just listen to what the Word tells us to do and would do it, we would not just be hearers of the Word, but doers also we have followed mm. the example of Christ and a lot of these things, these bridges would be gapped. You know, Jesus was able to, to, to connect with a person like Nicodemus and he was able to connect with the woman at the well. Yeah. He was able to do both. Yeah. You know, like there are followers of Jesus who came from high stations and high places um, in life, people with power like the centurion we talked about earlier and people of low estate who were able to come to him too. You know, Jesus draws all people and that should be what we should do uh, what we should model and what we should follow and do the same as. And how beautiful that he continues to pursue people without surrendering his convictions mm-hmm. or the truth. He gives us he gives us the the pattern. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He get, he gives us the vision of what to do. And yet what do we so regularly do? Josh, I think your your sermon from this past Sunday really has a lot to speak to this. Do you do you want to share your three points on on this and how and how we kind of step into these these spaces, or do you want me? I guess uh, you know I, I, we'll see if I remember them perfectly. But <laughs> <clears throat> I mean, we definitely you know as I said, we move uh, towards sin in our own lives and the uh, lives of others that we might see uh, repentance, restoration, and spiritual growth. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in that right. You know, if you, if you find yourself treating certain groups of people as unclean or, you know, unworthy of your attention, love, pursuit, um, grace, you can follow that pattern that Isaiah talks about where we repent of sin, confess it, and we repent of it open. We see restoration and reconciliation occur. Yeah. And then from that, right, God's promise to us is, is growth. Right. Doesn't he doesn't promise, you know, financial blessing. He doesn't promise a perfect life, but he does promise spiritual growth, which I, I always, at least for myself, when I'm like walking myself through this and thinking through this, I, I define that for myself as being more like Christ and discovering true joy yeah. in obedience to him, not my circumstances. And that's hard. It's hard yeah. to surrender that. Yeah. Uh, and I think simply put to your question of how can we do this better, <laughs> Uh, is Jesus uh, tells us this perfectly, and it's to be more gentle and more lowly, mm. just like Jesus. Mm. Um, you know, and I think with that is just such a call to humility, because um, we are so prideful, and I think that usually is such a uh, just frustration to keep us from uh, 
trying to understand and trying to process because I think like there is a way to still stand by your convictions, stand by the truth that you have come to know while doing it in a humble way, mm. not in an annoying uh, let's fight about it kind of way. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's good. Yeah, I feel like we did a really good job of like summarizing chapter two um, and going through like Christ's heart. So I'm excited for us to jump into chapter three moving forward and uh, continue to walk walk through this book. It's been very practical. So hopefully you guys have taken a lot from this as we've just explored these uh, different aspects of the book in more detail. Yeah. So with that, that is uh, Jesus's heart in action, the title of chapter two. Um, as always, if you guys would like to follow along and you don't have a book yet, please uh, email us at podcast at com, or if we say things that you have further questions on or you uh, have thoughts please email us at podcast at com. we love to hear from you there's no email that we're like ooh, we don't want that one we we love to see them all uh and we to the best of our ability will respond to all of them um but with that uh we hope you guys are encouraged and that you can go and be the church Speaking of videos, you didn't do a recap video this week. Nope, you did not. Yeah. I did. It was recorded this morning. Oh. Oh, you're a good one. have a recap video. Nope, I could um, not. I didn't Josh and now. David's oh, will. Right. And the, uh, he was notified on Monday night that there was no uh, recap video. It definitely didn't happen yesterday. I can say that much. He's starting to emulate SB. <laughs> right. Uh, yes.